1: It's Wednesday, September 27th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A 27-year-old Philadelphia police officer shot and killed a 27-year-old man named Eddie Azari last month as Azari sat in his car holding a knife. The knife did not appear to be an immediate threat since the car's window was shut, but within seconds of approaching the car, which was headed the wrong way on a one-way street, and after the officer's partner yelled out a warning, shots were fired. The shooting officer, Mark Dial, was charged with, among other lesser offenses, first-degree murder. But then, at a hearing yesterday, Philadelphia Municipal Court Judge Wendy L. Pugh threw out all the charges. Knife plus perception of threat apparently did not equal murder or any crime. It shocked Azari's family and the Philadelphia DA, who has been aggressive about charging the police with crimes, but mostly unsuccessful in getting those charges to stick. Under oath, a police official working with the DA said that a manslaughter charge, not a first-degree murder charge, would have been appropriate. Whether or not this was a crime, it was a tragedy and an avoidable one. It was not good policing. Eddie Azari did not have to die, even if his actions, grasping that knife, played a part in his death. His family has described him as schizophrenic. But then, yesterday, as protesters wound their way through the streets of Philadelphia and dusk settled on the city, there was an eruption of activity. But it wasn't a protest. In fact, it was a crime spree, a seemingly coordinated crime spree with looters busting into Lululemon, the Apple Store, and other stores downtown and throughout the city. Perhaps they were using the protests as cover, perhaps not. Some of the break-ins occurred miles away. In either case, it knocked the case of Mark Dial from the top story on local newscasts, like this from NBC Channel 10.
2: Let's get you up to speed with what you need to know today. We start with the looting that sent police
1: yeah.
0: swarming late last night and into the morning. It led to chaotic scenes throughout Philadelphia. We get the latest now from NBC 10's Randy Gillenhall.
1: That's what most Philadelphians are worried about today, not the life of Eddie Azari. They're not debating an open question of justice. They're worried about a clear case of lawlessness. I was reading an opinion piece about the Dial decision by Philadelphia Inquirer columnist Helen Eubinus. She writes, I increasingly wonder how anyone in this city can possibly have any faith in our unapologetically broken systems. What I see in here, in addition to anger, is an extraordinary amount of faith as well. Faith that if they just keep fighting, keep pushing, there might one day be justice. If not for their loved one, then for someone else's. That's hopeful, I suppose, but I don't think it accurately describes the dynamic. Why do people put their faith in the police? Because they have to. Because there are crime sprees occurring concurrently with calls for justice. Because we have, on the one hand, hard-to-parse video, shaky, yelling, split-second decisions. Decisions that don't seem just or good, but certainly seem confusing. On the other hand, we have... Many, many videos, clear as day, of looters getting tackled and arrested by cops as they run out of the Apple Store. Cops who are the last bulwark. So it's not so much that anyone can be convinced to have faith It's just that necessity intervened. The police are needed. The police know they're needed, and therefore they have wide latitude to define policing. The alternative, lawlessness, is so close at hand, it's very hard to be particular about how lawfulness will be practiced. On the show today in advance of the debate, the Republican debate, revisiting one prominent Vivek Ramaswamy answer and the follow-ups he fielded. But first, historian and author Heather Cox Richardson is out with a new book, Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. We discuss the people behind the Confederacy, Andrew Jackson's views on democracy, and how politicians are not incentivized to change their minds when given new information. Heather Cox Richardson, up next. Heather Cox Richardson is a professor of history at Boston College. She is the number one substacker in the world. Her new book is called Democracy Awakening Notes on the State of America, perhaps an echo of her substack column, letters from an American, and I have on good authority, in fact, a primary source, that the original title of the book was All I Know, because it is an attempt to make sense of this moment. What is history, if not looking back at the past, figuring out what really happened, and then, whether you want to or not, applying it to the lived experience of today. Heather Cox Richardson, welcome back to The Gist. It's such a pleasure to be here. So from all I read that you write and all the podcasting I hear that you do, this seems to be the kind of book that you had to write.
2: It's interesting you put it that way. I think maybe it was the kind of book that had to write me in the, the sense that it really feels like a look at this particular moment and everything that so many Americans are bringing to this moment as a way to rethink what this country really is.
1: Yeah, and so the word or the label that you most often affix to diagnose the ill of the moment. And there are many to choose from, from, um, you know Stephen Colbert's Truthiness to um, disinformation, to dislocation. But it's authoritarianism. And so this is really a book about the roots of authoritarianism and why they would take hold in the present. But of all the ills or all the descriptions, why do you think authoritarianism is the best way to think about
2: it? Because I think it's simple. If you think about human history, but certainly American history, which is my background, uh, our country has really been facing a struggle since the beginning between the idea of democracy in which everybody gets to be treated equally before the law and have a say in their government, and in which everybody is considered equal. And the idea that a few people are really better than others and not only um, have the right to, but also the duty to rule everybody else. And when we think about authoritarianism, people often look just to the 1920s or to the rise of Mussolini and Hitler in Italy and Germany in the 1930s. And right. the truth and it is- it couldn't
1: happen here and uh, what came to be known as fascism, right?
2: Right. It comes to be known as fascism, but the truth is those strands have much deeper roots around the world, but certainly in America. And in a sense, it has happened here before. So the question is, how do those strands of history play out in the present moment and which one will we choose going forward?
1: There are other ways to think about uh, the quirks, to put it nicely, of America. One of my favorites is Kurt Anderson. I don't know if you read his book, Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, a 500-Year History. But his point is America has always been a hotbed of kooks. We've countenanced it. We have wild religious traditions. Uh, and this is not to cast dispersions, just many, many more cults, many, many more new religions, belief systems that much of Europe has have, has jettisoned or had jettisoned at the time while Americans were still holding on to it. So, why do you think it's the strong man that's the most important thing to watch out for as opposed to the deluded man?
2: Because Although I like the idea that we're always have always been a nation of kooks, I think that is correct. One of the things that people like James Madison argued in Federalist Number Ten is that all those individual quirks will iron themselves out so long as you have a, a system of laws and a system of institutions that are designed to create stability for the vast majority. And the 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 difference between all of our kooks, which have in fact been at, throughout this country since the beginning and a system that has been taken over by a certain group of people is the difference between a a pluralistic society where everybody tugs and, and, and pushes and one in which one individual or very small group of individuals get to dictate for the rest of us, the way we live our lives. And actually, if you think about American history, we've had that latter condition in the past and it, it never, I mean, this is the thing that just kills historians. It never goes well. In the end, so you know, it feels like we're looking at something very similar right now.
1: Right, and um, there is the "want to be left alone" kook, and there's the "I want you to live live under my precepts" kook, and. They're not always separate. The Confederacy, of course, was a secession movement. So they could say, oh, we just want to be left alone. But what they wanted to be left alone to do was to make people live under their precepts. So let's talk about the people who were behind the Confederacy. And we could pick up the strand at many different places. But Earlier in the conversation, when you talked about the idea that, you know, maybe we need a strong authoritative figure, maybe the elites were, are in fact the best people to rule us, there are writings, there are prominent writings where it's not that people have to sneak this idea into the discourse. It is proudly proclaimed, no, you need to listen to us, your betters.
2: Yes, absolutely. And, and I would say that we've had that throughout American history. And there are times in which that kind of thinking becomes, uh, more prominent in society and often takes takes over society. So if you want to start with the Confederacy, their their argument for enslaving their neighbors, and that's one of the words I tend to tend to use a lot because this idea somehow of there being a big separation among enslavers and enslaved is just not true. They're literally living with each other. The idea that some of those people in that community should rule over the others becomes uh, their justific the, the 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 enslavers justification for continuing. system of enslavement and they increasingly come to believe that they have the 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 right and the duty to direct the American economy, American society, and the American political system. And as they start to develop that ideology, they come to uh, control the media, they come to control what people can see, they convince their voters, because remember, the number of people who can vote in the American South before the Civil War is very small, and they're all white men. And they come to convince those white men actually to act against their own interests in the American South, where the land is becoming monopolized by a very few large enslavers. Um, because they say, if you don't side with us, those people will take over your society and destroy it. Take your women, take your land, et cetera. And that ability to control those the people way are people an abolitionist think. abolitionist, meaning? No, they, the abolitionists, but also anybody who is interested in protecting the idea that people should have an equal say in the, the political system. And that include, included poor white people in the South. Um, who are uh, uh, largely landless before the Civil War, so that takes over and becomes this idea that this is true America, that democracy, as it was was talked about at the time of the Declaration of Independence, didn't actually mean people were created equal. It meant that de- uh, that voting should be local, should be either local or at the state level, and whatever a majority of voters at that level decided was democracy, even if it meant enslaving other people, taking other people's lands, uh, taking away rights, including from white people. And they convinced a lot of Americans that that's what democracy meant, so long as it meant a few white guys stayed on top. So Andrew Jackson believed this. Do you think he was earnest in his beliefs? oh my God, you're killing me. This, this literally keeps me up at night. This has been the issue that has, I've been thinking about for more than a year. So what is fascinating about it is that idea that democracy should be local is indeed Andrew Jackson in the late 1820s, when he is passed over for president in 24 and becomes president in 28. He begins to articulate this idea that 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 national government is a bunch of strangers, and they don't understand us. And he is empowering ordinary Americans to have a voice in their democracy, which is actually a pretty cool thing, except It, of course, justifies the taking of indigenous lands through the 1830 Indian Removal Act and then the movement of the system of enslavement into those lands that spreads uh, uh, the cotton economy across the South. And literally, I sit there every day going, did he mean it or was it justification? Because that really matters because that is exactly the same language and exactly the same argument that people like... um, Justice Antonin Scalia used in the originalist decisions that he wrote, you know, in the past several decades. So it matters. And I, I, I wish I knew. Do you have thoughts about it?
1: This is what I think. Psychology is he starts off from a place of earnest belief. And that belief is there's a lot of hatred and certainly hatred towards Native Americans who you know, uh, slaughtered his family, or at least that's what he believes. There are reasons behind that. And he gets popular and then people just keep pressing the, like rats. They are conditioned and they keep pressing the lever that works for them. So I think long after his actual beliefs were provably and demonstrably uh, true and beneficial to the people, he said he was helping the poor farmers, even though he was helping the rich. I don't know. He's probably then in a position where he's like, well, I'm going to keep doing this because it works for me.
2: Well, it also made him even wealthier than he was. But isn't that the question? You know, you might start out with a principled position and then the more positive feedback you get, the more it just makes sense, especially if it's putting money in your pockets. And I'm interested in the generational change. So if you think about, for example, the, the, the former Confederates after the Civil War, you know, they said a lot of things about how much better white people were than, than black people. And that was kind of an argument they developed in the 1830s and the 1840s. By the time their children come along, man, they're 100% on board. I'm better than these other people. And that certainly seems to have echoes in the present as well, no? Yes.
1: And it, but it also seems to me that as a class of people, politicians are least incentivized to change their minds or for new data to be processed and spit out in new ways. You know, then you get accused of flip-flopping. You have a brand, certainly in the 1830s, when the pace of information is so slow. I mean, to, to, the, to the point where that Andrew Jackson made his or gained his military heroism fighting a battle in a war that was already over, over. Just like no, one, yeah. no one knew it at the time. It, to me, it's, you know, an entrepreneur maybe needs to pivot or a regular citizen. I mean, psychology being what it is, it's hard, but maybe they have incentives to pivot. But man, does someone who's going to wind up on the currency or Mount Rushmore never, never need to pivot.
2: I think that's true, but it does open the way for younger politicians. And by younger, I don't mean necessarily age. I mean, newer in the system to be able to articulate new ways of of connecting with a population because the population changes what it wants. It enables somebody to say, hey, I'd like to break into that political circle. I'm going to start representing these people. And if you look, for example, at the at the New York delegation in the House of Representatives right now, they've really pushed to get rid of, I'm sorry, the Republican delegation of New Yorkers. They've really pushed to get rid of George Santos. Well, that makes sense because they're interested in picking up the voters who don't like him. And you can see that, you know, when the house turns over every two years, you can see people changing what they believe uh, in a, in a, I keep saying generational way, but in, you know, the younger people coming up, the newer people coming up saying, I've got to start to move in order to continue to get voters. And that change is really interesting, especially if you're in a moment like we are now, where there is literally a generational change, not just we're newer to politics, but also we're 150 years younger than the people who are currently holding power, because there's a real difference between the incoming politicians and the ones who have been there, you know, forever.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's because I am now older than the new politicians coming in. But I don't know down the line how often they're right. To some extent, uh, well – Let's look at the Republican Party and their gradual acceptance of climate change, which polls show is going on among the voters of Republicans, though barely ever expressed among the leaders, especially the older leaders. But the younger you get among Republicans, the more likely it is they'll say, of course, climate change is real, human caused, and there needs to be something done about it. All right, So there is an example of the, uh, the youth, the younger ideas uh, benefiting a party. I wonder on the progressive side, it's good to uh, push boundaries, but it also seems like if you grew up in a world where there never was inflation, you are not really going to care about or even think about inflation uh, and the real horrors thereof. And there are a lot of other Examples like that. If you never grew up with the possibility of a real war in Europe, you will maybe say to yourself, "There is no need to ever fund tanks, for instance." So I think I think that goes on too.
2: Yeah, could that absolutely could be. Uh, On the other hand, you might say, "Oh my God, this is really important. We need to deal with this." I mean, I'm not entirely sure you can take where we are right now with american political parties both of which are in extraordinary moments of transition and extrapolate from that to a larger theory of american politics um you know it's easier to look at more stable periods and make conclusions or draw larger conclusions from that i think perhaps than to draw any conclusions from what you know the the parties are doing today
1: here's a stable period the uh great liberal consensus uh of the post-war era drawn right from this is a major theme of your book. How much of a consensus was
2: there? I actually think it was really large. I mean, I think you can see it was really large by virtue of the fact that in 1960, there's that famous article by Phil Converse who says, you know, we no longer have to talk about the themes of democracy or the themes of, of the liberal consensus, which is the idea that the government has a role to play in society, you know, providing a basic social safety net, regulating business, promoting infrastructure and protecting civil rights. They said, you know, don't bother to talk about that because everybody believes it. And if you Mm -hmm. look at the politicians of the time, they did. So if, for example, you watch uh, the Nixon-Kennedy debates of 1960, it's really a detailed examination of what their positions, including on things like committees, means for the country at large. By 1968, uh, Nixon has jettisoned that, and he simply has, you know, vote me, I'm going to take care of the world. And that's that's not verbatim, but those very famous ads where he says, you know, I'm your answer, and and that was quite a deliberate attempt to influence people, not based on ideology so much as on emotions. And again, they were very, very clear about that. So how do you how do you break uh, a consensus to create a new consensus, which is what people like William F. Buckley Jr. and Brent Bazell uh, said that they were trying to do? How do you do that? You you create wedge issues based on fear and tear apart that consensus. And I just don't think the major parties really saw that coming until it was sending a wrecking ball right through the entire system.
1: And we will continue this conversation tomorrow where we discuss how the past-shaped present-day authoritarianism, Heather's optimism about the country, and then there's the electoral college. And now, the spiel. Tonight's debate in Simi Valley will be another chance for Americans to acquaint themselves with the gleaming smile and clever sophistry of Vivek Ramaswamy.
0: Let us be honest as Republicans. I'm the only person on the stage who isn't bought and paid for, so I can say this. The climate change agenda is a hoax. The climate change agenda is a hoax. And we have to declare independence for it. And the reality is, the anti-carbon agenda is the wet blanket on our economy. And so the reality is, more people are dying of bad climate change policies than they are of actual climate All change. Right, Governor, Governor
1: go? Notice how he said agenda, but he made it seem like he was just talking about climate change writ large. To be sure, Ramaswamy is wrong about the agenda costing more than climate change, but it's at least a reasonable talking point. Well, it's definitely one that got people talking. So he was asked to talk about it soon thereafter when interviewed by Andrea Mitchell on MSNBC you've called climate change and that
2: agenda a hoax you said more people are dying from bad climate change policies than there are of actual climate change but according to a u.n agency extreme weather events compounded by climate change caused the death of two million people between 1970 and 2021. can you offer a shred of evidence that more than two million people died from converting to clean energy
1: So I first encountered this exchange after it was flagged by the valuable Tangled newsletter and its founder, Isaac Saul. Saul engaged in a media critique, and his points are good ones. This isn't designed to shed light. This is a gotcha question. This is intended as a dunk and a signal to an audience unlikely to like what Ramaswamy is selling. It's setting a tone for an interview that's very, very unlikely to be illuminating. Agree, 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 and agree. But my problem with the question, the entire interview, wasn't journalism. It was climatological. So if I were Ramaswamy, checks teeth, I am not. I'd immediately jump. On the parameters of that study cited, 50 years beginning in 1970. In 1970, there was no global warming. Only two of the previous five years showed any global warming. Two showed global cooling. There was one year where the Earth stayed the same. The same pattern would repeat until the mid-70s, as much cooling as warming. Put up a chart. Consult any expert on Earth. They'll tell you it's true. So it's curious that they, or at least MSNBC, would cite or use a statistic beginning in a. Period where the phenomenon being blamed wasn't present, or was at least as unpresent as its opposite was present, if you can follow that. Furthermore, extreme weather events compounded by climate change. Chew on that phrase. Well, which weather events? All of them? Some of them? How much were they compounded? I'm not being nitpicky. Scientists differ on these points. I think you're I might say to Andrea, purposefully using obfuscatory language to paint an inaccurate picture. Now, I doubt Ramaswamy had the report at his fingertips, but I do. And I found, and he could have found, some remarkable facts therein. One is that, according to the World Meteorological Organization, extreme weather did cause 2 million deaths from 1970 to 2021. That part is true. Their language is extreme weather, climate, and water-related events. Climate change doesn't necessarily have an impact on the other two. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes that has a small impact, sometimes we don't know the impact. And there's another fact that we could prove that over a quarter of the total deaths, more than half a million deaths, took place in the decades of the 70s, when, as I stated before, there was no appreciable global warming, and there was some global cooling. More than 600,000 deaths occurred in the 80s, and there was global warming then, but Not nearly the amount that we would need in order to see the kind of destruction clearly implied. In fact, as global warming gets worse and more pronounced and more likely to lead to extreme weather, which is the situation we're in now, the deaths plummeted. Something else is going on here. And it's because the original report was not written as a warning about the effects of climate change. Far from it. But Rama Swarmy didn't say much of that because he doesn't believe it or who knows what he actually believes. He doesn't want to present that to the public as his belief system. He did state some factually accurate things, however, in his answer.
0: I can offer clear evidence that... The number of climate disaster-related deaths is down by 98% over the last century. The number of people who died of hurricanes, tornadoes, heat waves, and other weather-related events in 1920, for every 100 that died then die today. And the reason why is more plentiful, abundant access to fossil fuels and technology powered by fossil fuels. I can also tell you today, it is a hard fact, none of these things are disputed. Eight times as many people die of cold temperatures than die of warm ones. The right answer to all temperature-related deaths is more plentiful, abundant access to fossil fuels.
1: That is true. I know where it gets the statistic from, a Reason Magazine report. I know where they got their statistics from, the International Disaster Database affiliated with the Center for Research on the Epidemiology of Disasters. I looked through that database. I mean, a Russian famine caused by drought and war killed 5 million people alone in 1920 and 1921. Chinese famine of to killed about 6 million people. I mean, that's what it says in Wikipedia. The database says 3 million people. But the point is, Ramaswamy is right on the statistics. In this era, 100 years ago, before there was global warming, when the surface temperature of the Earth was cooling, as all the data shows, that this was the case in the first half of the 20th century, there was much, much, much more death from disaster. Ramaswamy is right but then he adds on this sentence to amend his facts and the reason why is more plentiful
0: abundant access to fossil fuels and technology powered by fossil fuels
1: Well, the reason is why there's less death is because of massive technological advancement and burning fuels and the catalytic converter and engines and so forth. They are a part of technological advancement, but Ramaswamy never grapples with the costs of fossil fuels. He makes it seem just as inaccurately as Andrea Mitchell did in her citations that it's all or nothing, right? It's either all weather deaths are because of climate or all diminution of deaths since the 1970s are because of fossil fuel. Thanks, gasoline. But let's get back to that report, because the rest of the interview doesn't contain anything else illuminating except if you're a student of rhetorical evasion and vague implication. The World Meteorological Organization's report on weather deaths... That's the report, 2 million deaths. But the first subheading was staggering inequalities. And that correctly points out that the casualties of storms and droughts are mostly borne by the poorest people in the poorest countries. But the second subhead is early warning saves lives. This is the conclusion of the report. Quote, just 24 hours notice prior to an impending weather hazard can cut the ensuing damage by 30% calling early warnings the low-hanging fruit of climate change adaptation because of their tenfold return on investment. It points out that only half the world is covered by early warning systems, and who's the least likely to have it? Yeah, the least developed countries. These are all actionable items. They will all go a long way to solve the problem of dying from weather events. They will greatly ameliorate the devastation, and it's a great investment. It's quite easy to do if we had the will and a little bit of money to do it. Economic development will help also. And if we could develop economically without using fossil burning fuels, a policy position that Ramaswamy would hate to endorse, but clearly knows is correct, that would be the best. This is actually an optimistic report. It gives us something to do, but it is treated in the context of the MSNBC interview I just played for you as nothing but a cudgel, a weirdly shaped cudgel. And it's used to put a politician in his place—a politician whose arguments are anathema to the audience he's talking to—and that is what's so infuriating, so dispiriting. We have an addressable problem, but at the two poles of the discussion are it's not a problem versus it's not solvable. We don't even want to have that discussion, and maybe Vivek Ramaswamy isn't the one to have it with. But how do you know? Cause you didn't try. And everyone got what they wanted out of the conversation. That's what will allow such conversations to continue. It worked for everyone except me, you, the Tangled Newsletter, and actually, you know, civilization. But Andrea Mitchell seemed to dunk on Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy showed he could go on MSNBC and dunk on their anchor with a blend of facts, patter, and deceptive tactics. And the audience could say, ooh, I hate that Ramaswamy but they'll be sufficiently agitated to keep paying attention through the next commercial break. Maybe Ramaswarmi will be challenged a bit on stage tonight. Though the moderators of the Fox Business Channel might be more loath to ask him a pointed question on this topic than the anchors of MSNBC are, and his challengers on stage probably have other points they want to nail him with, not the global warming point. And so as a result, most everyone watching will wrongly think either he's right or conclude he's wrong, but they'll do so for the wrong reasons. That's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of Said Gist. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. I will be in Rutherford, New Jersey on Friday. Let's put a link in the show notes, guys, to tell them where to go. It's 8 to 9:30, and I'll be speaking with Lou Perez for his show, The Wrong Take. With Lou Perez. Rutherford, New Jersey, $15. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Advertise AdvertiseCast. Let's say you want to advertise. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. It'll tell you how to advertise. How about that? I never say it that way. Watch. A flood of potential advertisements will ensue. Oomperuji peru duperu, and thanks for listening.